Welcome to the Cochrane Trainees Podcast, brought to you by Cochrane UK, inspiring medical and dental trainees to engage in evidence. Cochrane UK, trusted evidence, informed decisions, better health. This podcast is part of a series of conversations. To catch up and get the latest episode, go to uk.cochrane.org forward slash trainees. So my name is Rachel, I'm one of the Cochrane UK I'm here with David Toby today from the Cochrane Library. Um, hello, it's nice to meet you. Good morning. Good morning. Um, so I suppose uh, one of the first questions I have to ask you is what exactly do you do as Editor-in-Chief of the Cochrane Library? I'm Editor-in-Chief of Cochrane, I've been in that post since 2009. Uh, Cochrane decided to go down the path of having an Editor-in-Chief because it wanted to have uh, an individual who could take responsibility for the whole of the output across the 52, 53, as it was then, review groups. Uh, what we're particularly tasked with doing is ensuring that there's consistent, high-quality outputs. Uh, and that was the main uh, driver for Cochrane deciding to appoint an editor-in-chief. There's also uh, other aspects of the work which are around uh, being part of the publishing relationship, um, overseeing sort of dissemination activities, knowledge translation, uh, and so on. And I'm also now responsible for, for the Cochrane Review Groups, who facilitate the production of reviews, and also the methods groups. So I suppose my next question is, you started off in clinical practice. Um, how, did you, how did you make that transition from being a practicing GP to working in, in, in Cochrane? I mean, in some ways, it was very fortuitous. Uh, I was, I'd been a GP for nearly 15 years. Um, during that time, like many GPs, I'd done other activities outside the practice. Mm -hmm. So I'd been involved in postgraduate education. I'd um, been as a GP rep on various committees and so on. And I saw this post advertised in the BMJ for Editor of Clinical Evidence, which was uh, an evidence-based resource produced by the BMJ, and I just applied for the job, uh, with no great expectations of success, that has to be said, uh, and um, I was very lucky to be appointed. Uh, um, it was a full-time job, so I had to resign from my practice. Um, I always thought it might be a temporary move and that I'd one day move back, um, but I had six very happy years at the BMJ, and then in 2009, this role was advertised and uh, I was lucky enough to be appointed. But presumably you had some role in research as a trainee before you started, or as a... As a well, actually, I had very little. Um, I had written uh, some uh, articles, but they were mostly sort of opinion pieces. Um, and I had had a, a sort of honorary post at uh, King's College uh, School of Medicine, Department of General Practice, uh, as part of my postgraduate tutor work in the early 1990s. Um, but in terms of involvement in research, it was really limited, or virtually zero, really. Uh, so you know, the reason I was appointed at the BMJ was probably more to do with the fact that I'd uh, recently uh, been in clinical practice. Mm. And Fiona Godley, who was my boss then, um, was really looking for somebody to lead the editorial team there who had uh, clinical experience because she was concerned, I think rightly, that the uh, 
people responsible for producing clinical evidence were really good, but they weren't uh, that close to clinical practice, and they weren't, you wanted to bring clinical evidence more into the sort of clinical domain a bit. So I think that was the my, that was my my selling point. Um, they certainly didn't appoint me on the basis of my uh, my in-depth <laughs> research experience. Do you, do you still keep in touch with clinical practice now as part of Cochrane? I haven't um, seen a patient professionally since two thousand and three. Uh, I try to keep uh, um, uh, an eye on what's happening in primary care and, and healthcare generally as part of my job, um, and I have obviously contacts from my old lives, um, my old life in general practice. So I hear what's going on. Uh, I can see it, it's a very different view of, uh, from outside general practice yes. from that from inside, I, I can tell you that. Uh, the world looks very different. Um, but I, I haven't seen a patient professionally now for you know, 14 years. How has your perspective changed from when you were a clinician looking after individuals to now where you're more involved in, I suppose, Public health and population health. I think that's a, that's an important part of it. Uh, when you're on the front line, uh, probably is in hospital care or, or primary care, you very you very much feel that sense of responsibility for that individual patient, yes. and you, you you know you feel that you're that patient's advocate and you want to do your best for that patient. And to some extent, you think that um, well, at least I used to think perhaps that the buck stopped with me. Um, I wasn't sure that I was aware of how I could share that responsibility with others. It, seemed just, it did seem very personal. Um, when you come out of it, you begin to see that actually primary care and general practice is part of a system that works you know, some, a lot of the time quite well, but some of the time not as well as it ought. Um, and it's easy to see, in a sense, how primary care fits into the broader picture uh, than when you're actually in it, when you feel like uh, you know, you're the centre of your own world. Have you enjoyed the transition? Oh, the transition's been uh, life-changing for me. I, mean, I, was, I, was, I enjoyed general practice. There were lots of things I, I enjoyed about it. Uh, I enjoyed the, the people contact. Um, I was interested in the process of consulting. Uh, I read a lot around that. Um, that was always a very uh, rewarding part of the job. Um, so there were some things about it I miss. Mm. Um, but I also uh, always was interested in the sort of bigger picture of how we create a better health system, how we do better by patients in general. Um, and I think this post has allowed me to see that part of things in a slightly different way than when I was sitting on the front line. Well, I suppose GPs nowadays are taking on a little bit more of that of that role, aren't they? Well, to some extent, uh, I think primary care has, uh, and in a sense, created difficulties for itself mm -hmm. to some extent, perfectly uh, you know, out of enthusiasm and ambition, really. So when I look back at what... Um, my early days of primary care, you know, we were looking at patients who were being treated in hospitals for hypertension, mm -hmm. type 2 diabetes, COPD, asthma, and thinking, well, we could look after those people. Yes. You know, we could run specialist clinics in diabetes or asthma or uh, COPD and so on. 
And uh, there was a sort of transition over, the, uh, over those couple of decades where a lot of those patients began to be much more managed in uh, primary care than in secondary care. I mean, I mean, it's virtually unheard of to refer somebody with hypertension to hospital yes. nowadays, um, whereas it probably wasn't in the sort of middle 80s and so on. So, um, so we sort of created that sort of sense of ourselves as being these sort of generalists who could look after chronic disease in particular um, and who could take on other things. You know, when I went into general practice, people was, uh, GPs were still, a uh, minority of GPs were still very uh, involved in childbirth, for example. Yeah. Um, I think what that has done is create a sort of expectation of a service that is now very difficult to deliver because uh, as there's a, for things, the expectations of primary care have increased, so capacity hasn't really. Mm. And so that's put enormous pressures back onto the system, uh, which I think are partly responsible for some of the challenges they currently face. But the initial intention was the right one, which was to see that these people were wandering up to hospital, seeing fairly junior doctors, having very brief consultations, somebody was measuring their blood pressure, saying, are you okay? changing the drugs or not changing the drugs and sending them away again. And that, all of that and more can be achieved in primary care. I mean, I suppose the received wisdom is that it's better to treat people in the community, if at all possible. Um, so are you, do you feel that um, general practice needs to expand to, to, to deal with this capacity? Or do you think that some of that responsibility should go back towards hospital care? I think what's, what's most important is people get the right care. Um, and I think we should probably worry a bit less about who delivers it. Yes. But having said that, most of those the tasks that are involved in looking after people with long-term conditions can be, I think, achieved in primary care. What surprised me, probably 20 years ago, when I was visited by a US GP, was that he, in fact, apart from that, he didn't have a computer at the time, which was astonishing in itself, but he also didn't really have a team. So when there was a blood test to be taken or a baby check, to be, a baby vaccination to be given, he was the person giving it. Whereas even at that time, within most general practices in the UK, there was a team. You had nurses, you had uh, maybe you had social workers, you had health visitors, you had uh, people who were doing psych uh, psychotherapy or counselling. So uh, what I think primary care needs are really efficient uh, good teams that give them capacity, that allow the uh, physicians, the GPs, to do sort of problem solving and uh, sort of, uh, almost patient strategy work that is needed. Um, so that, so that you know, maybe the colds and the, uh, and the other sort of fairly straightforward transactional consultations can be uh, done by others. Now that has been the rule in UK general practice for at least two decades, to my knowledge, and probably beyond that. But maybe if we're going to increase the capacity of primary care, and that would be a good thing, what we need is even larger mm -hmm. primary care teams to, to achieve that. Um, because at the moment it's clear from both the patient side and the, and the, and the health professional side that the system is uh, really creaking at the edges. I mean, is that uh, sort of tying in with the idea of having more centralised care as opposed to the larger practices that are sort of a multi, sort of a big GP practice as opposed to smaller single-handed practices? I, I have always been an advocate of large-ish large practices. 
I think there is an issue around continuity of care that is important and is an important aspect of trust mm-hmm. from uh, trust between uh, the users of the service and the service itself. So I think there probably is a size beyond which you know you shouldn't yeah. you shouldn't go because you inevitably will lose continuity and maybe continuity can't really be promised anymore in the current system. But I wouldn't lose sight of it altogether. I think it's probably quite an important thing, at least to patients. But certainly, I think the days of very small practices, which you know clearly are going to struggle if anyone gets sick or or um, has to go and deal with an emergency. Um, You know, I think you know those sort of practices probably uh, their days are numbered. I would have thought we ought to be looking at you know at least medium-sized practices going forward. And I, I was, uh, shortly before leaving uh, my practice, we would have got conversations there about forming a sort of mega practice. Sure. Uh, I don't think it ever happened. Um, but I think there would have been advantages. Uh, you know, across the practices, we would have had people with minor surgery experience, diabetes, ENT, and so on. Never miss a podcast. Sign up for the Cochrane Trainees Digest at uk.cochrane.org forward slash trainees. Follow us on Twitter at Cochrane UK and join the conversation with hashtag Cochrane Trainees. non-clinical groups that look about how care is delivered. But often, even in the clinical groups, the reviews have uh, important policy ramifications and will be really focusing towards policymakers rather than the sort of individual health professionals mm-hmm. or individual patients sure. or consumers. What, what I really wanted to pick your brain about as well, actually, was obviously as editor of Cochrane, you are well aware of the I suppose, abundance of research there is out there. How do you sort of pick through and decide what's worth reading and what's relevant to you? In a way, the, the important part of that question is, you know, what are the questions that are most important to the decision makers? So one of the challenges that we've put to the review groups is to really uh, think within their discipline, because as you know, every review group looks at a particular discipline. And to engage with decision makers and work out what are the pieces of, what are the research questions, what are the uncertainties that are going to be the most uh, important to them. And once you have that information, you can start to identify your question in more detail and uh, aim your reviews at them. And then, of course, what you're doing is pulling together many uh, clinical studies um, and uh, trying to sort of produce a sort of pooled answer. Mm-hmm. You know, what is the whole body of research saying? Not simply what are these one or two prominent articles saying. So if you were, for example, a trainee in general practice um, and you were trying to formulate 
a clinical question that you wanted to answer. Yeah. How would you, what would be the best way of going out about that? Well, a lot of uh, talk in evidence-based uh, medicine sits around the PICO question. And the PICO yes. question is crucial. So to give an example, when I first went to clinical evidence, uh, we had a chapter uh, on acne. Mm -hmm. And when you looked at that chapter, we used to categorise treatments as beneficial, likely to be beneficial, uh, trade-off between benefits and harms, too uncertain or harmful. So we had these classifications. And when I first looked at the acne chapter and that categorization chart, it had uh, benzoyl peroxide as being beneficial and roaccutane as being beneficial. And when you think about it, those two drugs aren't really in opposition to one another. Mm. You, you, you're very rarely in a position where you're thinking, shall I use benzoyl peroxide or shall I use roaccutane? So, and the, so the question there is, what's the population? Are we talking about a population of people with mild acne who haven't tried anything else and we go on to the chemist and get some benzoyl peroxide? Or are we talking about people who've tried everything that can be given for acne, including oral antibiotics, topical antibiotics and so on, and all of which has failed, and who therefore may be a category for Accutane. Yeah. So when you're thinking about a question, it's important to think about the population, not just what's the condition, acne, but what's the place of that, that individual in the sort of... Uh, in the sort of life cycle of the disease. Yes. So, and that would work for cancers, and Parkinson's disease, and hypertension, and so on. So the population is really important. And then you want to think about what are the plausible interventions at that point? And, and how would you decide how to use them? So, historically, reviews looked at in, uh, studies that looked at a, a, an intervention, usually a drug, against placebo. But if you're sitting in your general practice, trying to decide what to give a patient. In many, many situations, placebo isn't a viable option. Yes. Doing nothing isn't a viable option. So then you want to know, well, you know, I've got this, I'm aware of this new intervention. Is it actually better than the interventions I would have given last week? So then you think about what's the intervention and, intervention and the comparison. And then the final piece is, what's the outcome? You know, it's very common you hear people say, does this drug work? Does that drug work? As if it's a sort of switch, you switch it on, it works, switch it off, it doesn't work. Uh, and it's, it's never that simple. So then you're thinking, what are the outcomes that matter? And so you're thinking, well, does it make you live longer? Or does it make your symptoms uh, better controlled? Or does it get you out of hospital quicker? Or does it improve your quality of life? And depending on your personal preferences and values, and perhaps the stage of the disease, and perhaps the stage of your life, People may, you may give different answers to those questions. So, uh, you know, if I was 105 and I was being offered an anti-high blood pressure drug, then the most important thing for me might not be, will it make me live mm -hmm. longer? But it might be, will I avoid having a stroke? Yes. So the PICO framework allows you to start to think beyond, oh, let's just you know, think about a disease, to being much more specific in your question, and then you can start to filter which research actually addresses those questions. Um, and you know, you'll, you'll, there may be some variation around that. You know, maybe looking at people over forty, and actually the research is done people who are thirty-five. Yeah. Wow, that's probably applicable uh, in some in most circumstances. Um, so you may have to make some choices around that. But being quite specific about those PICO elements is important. And then there's a piece about thinking, what's the sort of research that we need to answer the question? Mm -hmm. 
And so typically in an effectiveness question, um, when we'll be thinking about a randomized trial. So uh, the best way of uh, working out uh, the difference between an intervention and a comparison, uh, um, because other things are being controlled for, and you'll be able to see the effect of that intervention. Now, it's not always plausible, not always feasible to do a randomized trial, um, and sometimes even when it is, they haven't been done. And then you may have to look at other forms of evidence. But for the sort of intervention questions that Cochrane specialises in, the, the randomised trial is the sort of cornerstone of the work we do. How do you think, I mean, switching it so it's the other way around, how, is it, how do you think people should be using the results of Cochrane reviews in their clinical practice? Is it something that you think, you, you know, you, you see the result of something and you decide I'm going to do this always, all the time, or do you think it's more nuanced than that? I think it is slightly more nuanced than that, but it's not impossibly nuanced. So, in a sense, the systematic review tells you uh, a, a, a fairly limited number of things. You know, is there a difference between this intervention and that intervention? Um, what's the likelihood that that uh, difference is real? And what's the magnitude of that mm -hmm. difference? Uh, and I suppose what's the direction? You know, is, it, is one better than the other, or yes. is it the other way around? Yes. Yes. So. Um, if, you're seeing, if you were seeing somebody with uh, hypertension and you were thinking of putting him on an ACE inhibitor, it might be useful to know, okay, what's the evidence that the ACE inhibitor is better than some other treatment you might give, thiazide, for example. And then you can start to look at the reviews that have made that comparison and you'll see that maybe the risk of having a stroke or heart disease is different with one intervention or another. And you won't see how much difference. And it may, there may be other features factors that might be pushing you to or against, to or, uh, or, or away from one of the interventions. I suppose if you're diabetic, you might want to avoid the thiazide, for example. So um, so you can then start to see the difference, and even that, that evidence then plays a part in the, the decision that you make together. I think where people make a mistake is to think, well, if the evidence says this, then we should always do that. Mm -hmm. um, and in my experience, that's not really the case. It just helps you to apply to provide some important context. And if the evidence is clearly pointing that A is better than B in almost all circumstances, then you'd be pretty perverse to choose yeah. B. But in general, it is more nuanced than that. And A may only be slightly better than B, but actually A may have very more harms than B. Uh, may even be fantastically more expensive than B. And so it may well be that you could say, well, actually, B is pretty good as well. Um, and therefore, maybe B, in this instance, is a better choice for this individual than A, even though, you know, pound for pound, A looks slightly more effective for this outcome. Um, and my final question, would you, what sort of advice would you have for someone who's just starting out on a, on a research career? Well, I, I would say, and I suppose I'm biased, but I would say that systematic review is a really important part of the evidence picture and the research picture. So when I went into, when I came into this, I suppose my view of a systematic review was that you got all the trials done and you pooled all the evidence and you came up with the result and that was it. So it was simply a sort of post hoc inquiry of, uh, of, the, of the research that had been done. 
I think that was a naive and somewhat simplistic view, looking back, mm. because actually systematic reviews should also be guiding research. So people shouldn't be doing trials unless they can show that there is evidence from a systematic review that that trial is a worthwhile question. Right. Um, you know, there's plenty of examples of treatments that have been trialled and trialled and trialled long after the answer was really known, and therefore the people in those trials, you know, half of them were probably uh, getting a, uh, an inferior treatment mm -hmm. um, because people weren't saying, actually, is this question answered or not answered? And if it's answered, there shouldn't be another trial. So systematic reviews have a place at the beginning of research as well as at the end. And then, of course, each systematic review should then go on to drive further research. So it might say at the end of a systematic review, well, we know these things, but these questions we still don't know. And so research should uh, focus in these areas, looking at these populations, these different interventions, doses, or so on. So um, I would say if you're starting a research career, think of the systematic review as sort of... Uh, being incorporated at various stages of research process, um, and you know, I mean, being both before, after, and beyond uh, the clinical trial. Well, thank you very much for your time. That was a very interesting talk. Okay. Um. <laughs> thank you very much. This podcast was presented by Rachel, produced by Jack, and narrated by me, Farrow. Join us next time. Never miss a podcast. Sign up for the Cochrane Trainees Digest at uk.cochrane.org forward slash trainees.